For sports content from the biggest leagues and competitions across the world, look no further than Reuters Connect, Reuters online news content platform. Reuters Connect makes finding the sports content you need easy, whether it's in-depth reporting from Reuters journalists or access to video highlights from around the world. Bring the world of sport directly to your workplace with Reuters Connect. For more information and a free trial, visit ReutersConnect.com. Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week, we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rulemakers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Sports professor Rick Harrow inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports, and we are keeping score. Big issues all over the world, UEFA, Olympics, NHL, NBA, Major League Baseball, you name it, off-field, on-field, it's happening. So deal-making issues, three to one. Three. Raiders defensive end Carl Nassib had the top-selling NFL jersey across the Fanatics network over the weekend after he became the first NFL player to come out as gay while active in the league. His declaration marked a significant moment in American sport, long identified with traditional ideas of masculinity, wrote the Wall Street Journal. No openly gay player had competed in a regular season NFL game to date. Michael Sam came out as gay before the 2014 NFL draft and played in a preseason game for the Rams that year, but did not make the regular season roster and a handful of other NFL players have come out after their careers. New York Times' Ken Belson wrote that Nassib's announcement made during Pride Month is a significant turning point for the NFL. The league in recent years has publicly reported Pride Month through promotional efforts like changing official social media avatars to include rainbows and supporting the You Can Play profile. Nassib's announcement met with ready public support both from the league itself and the Raiders, a team had previously made Notable football milestones with its hires. Two. Number two, IBM detailed plans for a new immersive digital experience at Wimbledon this year. The tech leader and longtime tennis backer launching new innovations in partnership with the All England Lawn Tennis Club, offering three new features the IBM Power Rankings, pre match insights, and personalized recommendations and highlights. For over three decades, IBM helped develop and foster innovative and engaging fan experiences for Wimbledon, said Kevin Farrar, UK Sports Partnership lead, with reduced capacity on-site at Wimbledon this year. Digital engagement is more important than ever, and by leveraging hybrid cloud technologies and A1, fans can get the experience AI they're used to no matter where they watch the tournament. The new technology especially key for international tennis fans. Only those residing in the U.K. allowed to attend the tournament this year, exempting credential media and limited player support staffs. That's deal-making issue number two. One. Number one, you might expect focusing on something that is key to this year, the beginning Stanley Cup Finals. As COVID cases in Canada decline, hockey fans fever up. It's on the rise. Up north, and on the Sun Belt. After most Canadian hockey fans were deprived of the ability to attend games in person throughout the NFL-NHL season, 
The Montreal Gazette reported resale tickets for the Canadians Lightning Stanley Cup Finals Game 1 at Amelie Arena started at about 500 bucks, going up to $10,000 per ticket. Secondary tickets for Game 3 at Bell Center began at about 5000 skyrocketing to 25000 per ticket, about 47000 per pair plus fees. Tickets for Game 6, if necessary, on July 9 in Montreal started 7000 each and reached 35000 per ticket. A lot of the disparity in pricing surely has to do with supply and demand. Tampa recently welcomed close to 15,000 fans per game for its third-round series against the Islanders. The Canadians limited to 3,500 fans per game at the Bell Center due to public health regulations. Tampa now in hot pursuit of its third title after 2004 and 2020. Well, speaking of the NHL, really honored to have Gary Bettman on, a friend but the longest-serving commissioner in North American sport. He began as the commissioner of the NHL on February 1, 1993. He's been at the league's helm for more total regular season and playoff games played than all of the NHL predecessors combined, and he's guided the league through record revenues, major TV deals, international expansion, etc., in addition to competitive balance, labor peace, and the like. But he'll explain it to you as we get ready for the Stanley Cup finals in the middle of it and at the end the NHL in capable hands here's Gary Bettman I know you just returned from a uh, a non-air-conditioned tour of the new UBS facility that is opening in uh, uh, Belmont on Long Island in uh, September October how's it look it looks spectacular it, it was only 95 degrees and the air conditioning wasn't on yet, but it was certainly worth it. Uh, they're going to be as fan friendly, as environmentally friendly and as exciting as any facility that anybody's ever seen. So it, it it's at a good time as the world appears to be normalizing and people are gathering again in large groups. When you took the job in February of 93, uh, the state of the NHL brand um, was evolving. Kind of describe where it was then and how your earliest goals and objectives mesh with basically where you are now. Give yourself a critique. Well, I, I, I try to leave the critiquing for others, so let me stick to the facts. Uh, when we had far fewer teams, when I had uh, been anointed commissioner, we had just admitted two more teams, which took us, I think, the 24 at the time. We'll be at 32 for next season. I think gross revenues for the entire league was 430 some odd million dollars. Uh, had it not been for the pandemic this year, we probably would have been about five and a half billion. Uh, we have new arenas. We have this best competitive balance in all sports because of these economic system we have with the players that enable all of our teams to compete by virtue of a salary cap and revenue sharing. Uh, and we had to pay a pretty big price to get it. Uh, but at the end of the day, we're, we're bigger, stronger, have more fans, are more widely followed, have more distribution of our games on every platform um, than we ever have before. And we find ourselves having navigated, like everybody else, a very difficult year and a quarter. Uh, but we think we're coming out of it on the other side 
uh, as strong as we've ever been. All of our franchises are healthy and stable. Uh, and and we think the future is as optimistic, as rosy, and as bright as it's ever been. Interesting kind of book ending. Maybe we take a little historical liberty, but not too long after you assume the helm, the major the lockout, the labor disruption, uh, labor piece that's, as you have said, legitimately much better for the economic future of the game. But there were a whole group of people uh, rowing in one direction, then players and the union rowing in the other direction. And the other bookend was, I guess, just coming out of COVID, where at the end of the day, you have to cooperate to survive. Maybe compare and contrast the two um, uh, processes and where you found yourself. Well, actually, if we're going to do a little bit of historical perspective, there have been two times that the Stanley Cup hasn't been awarded in its 130-ish year history, being the most storied trophy in all sports. One was the 2004-2005 season when we had a shutdown because of the labor dispute that ultimately led to the system we have. And the other, interesting enough, was 1919 uh, during the Spanish flu pandemic. Uh, and that was in the second wave, actually, because the pandemic started in 1918, but it was in 1919 that it came roaring back and we didn't have the Stanley Cup final. What, what, what we have learned uh, in the last 15 months, and I knew from our experience, because we'd had more than one work stoppage, unfortunately, is you need to have full league unity if you're going to try and accomplish any important objective. Uh, as commissioner, I need support of my owners, uh, which which I get regularly and they're terrific as a group. I would put them up against the ownership of any league anywhere in the world. Uh, you, you have to understand your game and the business of your game. You have to understand prevailing conditions. You have to understand your options and you must be agile and flexible enough to execute on whatever is called for. So if we move that to what we've all been through with COVID, our number one priority was the health and safety of our players, uh, the health and safety of our supporting personnel, and the health and safety of our, the communities in which we play. And everything that we did in a very uncertain time because you know, I, I went to the School of Industrial and Labor Relations at Cornell, social sciences. I wanted to be as far away from the physical sciences and medicine as any human being could be. And I spent the last year getting an education in, in medicine uh, and science. But, but that was what was called for and essential. And we understood that it was important to preserve as much cash as possible. And we did a variety of things with the players and the players association to do that, to work with our business partners, and most importantly, to stay connected to our fans. And when we weren't playing and we took the pause, we were using every media platform available to create content, to keep people connected so that they could see what our players were doing. We were using historical games. We were using uh, social media and digital platforms. We were creating special shows all of which was to keep people engaged and give them a sense of distraction in a time when there was no normalcy. We had to, in the midst of all this, 
figure out how to complete the 1920 season, uh, which was a Herculean effort, which required the complete cooperation of our players and our players association, which we got and governmental entities, particularly in Canada at the federal and provincial level, so that we could set up bubbles in, uh, in Toronto and Edmonton. We executed an extension to our collective bargaining agreement. We borrowed lots and lots of money from institutions to make sure that our clubs had plenty of cash. Uh, and we did what we needed to do in terms of a competitive framework to complete the season and play the playoffs, even though it was without fans. We then, having accomplished that, you know, it's funny, when I came out of the bubble from Edmonton, having presented the cup, I had this notion for the five-hour plane flight that, okay, I could take a few days or weeks off and then get ready for next season. And as soon as I hit the ground, it was... I, I was delusional, we had to start planning for the next season. Uh, a season where, in retrospect, we weren't allowed to cross the Canadian border. We had to realign. We had to use a modified schedule. Uh, and these were, and at the same time, in the midst of all this, uh, negotiate new U.S. media contracts. And what we found was essential was A, you had to have the cooperation of all your constituent groups, particularly the players and the players association, but the clubs had to cooperate. B, you had to give your fans a sense of connectivity, a sense of being a part of it, a sense of letting them know that they're important and that's why we're doing all the things that we were doing. Uh, and we had to make a lot of adjustments. We had outbreaks of COVID on some teams. We had to keep jiggering the schedule, uh, although we got the regular season of 56 games compared to our usual 82 completed. Uh, we're about, we're at the end of the second round of the playoffs, about to enter the third. And if everything stays the way it is, the Montreal Canadiens have now been given, as we have an exemption to come and go across the border to play the games in, in the conference finals. Uh, we're going to be able to bring in whatever team's going to face them, whether it's uh, Vegas or Colorado. Uh, but all of this required constant scrutiny, including waking up every day to look at test results to see how many NHL personnel had been infected and who we had a quarantine and what games might have to be rescheduled. And it took an extraordinary organization. I'm quite fortunate with people that work with me at the league office and at the club levels and at the Players Association and our doctors. And our doctors were talking to the doctors at the other major leagues on a weekly basis, if not more, because we were all sharing information as to how to set up the right protocols to get through this. I don't even remember the question you asked me anymore, but this was a long-winded way of saying, this is what we had to do to get through the last 15 months. Well, you answered that one and probably seven or eight others that I either asked or kind of half-asked. But the issue, my takeaway from all of that, and it's brilliant, it's a question that is maybe more psychological. I get to ask this question because I know you. Control is very important and not top-down, my way or the highway control, but you're firmly controlling the situation. Your owners know that. Everybody in the sport knows that, and that's one of the beauties of how people perceive you as commissioner. What's it like waking up every day knowing that the fundamentally biggest issue that you have to deal with on a regular basis is something you have no control over, which is the spread of the virus? 
That, that presumes that you go to sleep at the in the first instance <laughs> so you can wake up. Uh, it, it, it was, and I'm sure Fred will tell you the same thing and the other commissioners would tell you the same thing as well. Um, when, when there's uncertainty, uh, it can be a little stressful, especially for us type A's. <laughs> but you have to learn to adjust to the fact that you were living in a world where you needed to, to be flexible. But the way you deal with that control is you, you learn everything you can learn. You get as much information as data on a constant real-time basis, and you're constantly exploring your options. And, you know, I forget who said it, and a lot of people take credit for the quote, but, but vision without execution is nothing more than a hallucination. And so the goal was not to hallucinate, it was to think about what your choices were, what your options were, and be able to react in real time. Uh, and that was the key, for, and, and having a, a well-oiled organization, if you will, people who know how to work together and were committed, and by the way, having to do all the things we just talked about virtually, right? That's not the way we function generally. Right. Ne negotiating, you know, a collective bargaining agreement virtually, negotiating major media deals virtually, that was a new experience. It, it also reminded me that I guess we could all work a lot differently and spend a few less hours on airplanes, but it, it, we were all taken out of our normal natural rhythm, but there were no excuses. It was you had to keep going, otherwise you would be consumed. Uh, and again, you know, whether it, it's personal or family, worrying about everybody's health. I mean, we used to, at the beginning, my senior staff and a few other people who I put together as a task force, we were having conference calls to start every single day. And the first question was, okay, how many of our people have tested positive? Who's sick? Okay, not, not because we were docking them pay or anything. To the contrary, we wanted to make sure everybody was healthy and getting through this. And that was always the goal because you got to take care of your people. But again, none of this happens if we don't get full buy-in and cooperation, particularly from the players and the Players Association. Two more. Uh, one, the great answer, as always. Two more. Uh, franchise value people, we're talking about brand valuation and people always focus on, on that, that you know, the league gets 500 million for a expansion franchise in Vegas, then a worldwide pandemic throwing the whole world into crisis. Then you get 650 for a franchise in Seattle. Kudos to you. And just to identify that that's one of the key indicators that all the textbook people have. What, what is what is kind of your big now key indicator of you've already reached that pinnacle expansions done at least for today in Seattle. What's the next big challenge? Well, first of all, the the expansion agreement uh, was struck, I don't know, three years ago for Seattle. Uh, and I will tell you, it was one of the most uh, contentious executive committee meetings I ever had because they thought I had set a price that was way too low. And in retrospect, I may not have. And just like people thought we were crazy for going to Las Vegas as the first club, and it's been an incredible, huge success. Thank you, Bill Foley and everybody at the Vegas Golden Knights. Um, and now every other sports league, you know, thinks it's the greatest place to consider going. Uh, and I guess 
you know, uh, flattery is is most indicated by imitation. But it, at the end of the day, to me, what what I take from this comes in three packages. One, uh, our fans are coming back in in absolute surges. Uh, to the extent we're allowed to have fans, uh, our buildings are are packed. They're alive. The energy is incredible. The confluence, I suppose, of the playoffs starting, people missing us, and people looking to get a sense of normalcy. Our buildings have been sensational. I, I was in Boston the night before last, packed house, and the fans could have blown the roof off. And it's great to have that sense of normalcy <clears throat> and to see how much our fans miss us, which has always been the case. I mean, people forget the fact that when we took off the 0405 season, we came back to record revenues, record attendance, and record ratings. And I don't know that any business in any industry has ever been able to accomplish that after shutting down for a year. The second is um, the confidence that Warner Media and the Walt Disney Company through Turner and ESPN and ABC have shown in us moving forward. Uh, we couldn't be more gratified and excited about and having roughly two and a half to three times what our US media rights revenues had been. Uh, and we've also had tremendous engagement from our existing partners, uh, business partners and others. So from our standpoint, I always believe that, that you know, the traditional uh, uh, publications that, that post franchise values have always historically undervalued hockey franchises, undervalue the value of the fact that we have the best fans, the most affluent, the best educated, the most tech savvy in all the sports, the fact that our fans tend to be the most passionate. Uh, and as I said before, all of our franchises are stable and healthy and there are no issues. Uh, I think our values have are, are higher than they've ever been and are only going to go up further. Final question for you and you eloquently write in in our book we did together, um, Sport Business Handbook. You say when there is adversity, you deal with it, and move on. You don't ignore it. You don't gloss over it. You got to confront it. Adversary adversity is not an excuse. You can't be afraid of it. Um, and that's a consistent theme. But if anything, uh, how relevant is that advice to everybody as we come back from the pandemic? You don't always get to choose the hand that you're dealt. And if you're running an organization, if you're trying to not just create value, but maintain value, you have to make the tough decisions. You have to be prepared to make them. And most importantly, you have to be transparent in what you're doing. And, you know, nobody gets it right 100% of the time, but if people understand what you're doing, they'll respect the decisions you make. And over time, hopefully you're making good decisions. Otherwise, you won't be the one continuing to make those decisions. Gary Bettman always seems to face crises calmly and capably, a contributor to my sport business handbook. He certainly will be at the NHL defining policy as we continue to move forward. Let's do the Sports Tech Minute. Epic Games building out parts of its business that haven't been built out before. Front Office Sports noted, it's fair to call Epic Games Fortnite Inc. Breakout has uh, hit accounted for 97% of the company's $5.6 billion in revenue in 2018, according to documents that came out through the lawsuit against Apple. 
Fortnite revenue dropped each of the next two years, as did Epic's, but other aspects of the business began to emerge. Epic Games Store launched, as an example, launched in December 18. It made $2 million in revenue. The store grew from $233 million in 2019 to $401 million last year. Epic, valued at $28.7 billion in April, has sought to undercut the market to lure game publishers. The company takes 12% of purchases made on its platform, whereas Apple and Google take about 30% from most publisher revenue. The Epic Games Store competes against tech behemoths like Apple and Google, and the company has taken that battle to the courts. And if successful, its antitrust lawsuit against Apple could force a reconfiguration of the App Store. Both Epic and Apple have completed final arguments in that case, and the verdict expected in August. We'll see what happens in that shakeup. Then finally, Good Sports 5, as usual, significant philanthropy this year, this month, like any month. South Florida, uh, all sports in South Florida, it responds to the Surfside disaster. Sports teams involved in sending van loads of supplies as far as Orlando as well. Broader league-wide relief plans are still taking shape. Miami area sports teams at all levels have already begun setting up fundraisers and aiding in the rescue effort. City kicked off a new Paralympic campaign that will highlight the athlete feats of Paralympics and Paralympians and aim to change the public's perception of people with disabilities. Through this movement, City and Team City will call on people across the globe to share their own experiences tied to disability to help change perceptions around the globe relative to the Paralympics and the athletes and the competitions. ESPN Awards season in full swing, with the company laying out details for both the ESPYs as well as the 7th Annual Sports Humanitarian Awards. Those will take place on July 12 at the rooftop at Pier 17 in New York City with a 90-minute television special airing July 24 on ABC. Coca-Cola North America announced plans to boost its spending with minority-owned media to 8% of the company's total annual media budget in North America by 2024. It's clear that Coke is trying hard to live up to its longtime slogan, Coke is the real thing. And finally, when there's documented goodwill throughout sports, the entertainment industry isn't too shabby either. Variety announced that entertainment industry leaders like George Clooney, Eva Longoria, and among others, are teaming with the Los Angeles Unified School District to deal with a school film and television production magnet high school to drive transformational change across the entertainment industry for schools from underserved communities. The new magnet school provides a path into the industry for those whose journey would otherwise be far more uncertain. And that's your Good Sports 5 for the week. It keeps getting bigger, more diverse, and more philanthropic. Well, that's our show for this week. We'd like to thank, obviously, Gary Bettman for lending his expertise and credibility at a very busy time. We'd like to thank those who put the show together. And we'd like to thank you for continuing to listen and watch. And join us next week when we continue to keep score. Action Images is the global multimedia sports agency of Reuters. 
Leagues, teams and federations around the world rely on Action Images to create, distribute and monetize their content. Action Images' global footprint means sports media expertise is never far away. For more information, visit actionimages.com.